How Firm a Foundation is one of the great hymns of the church. It's also one of my personal favorites. I didn't grow up on the hymns. I'm kind of a Johnny-come-lately with that uh, genre of music. But over the last 10 to 15 years or so, I've really become a, um, uh, a rich uh, fan of the richness of these uh, of these great, great songs. Well, the song, How Firm a Foundation, starts with this stanza. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? One of the uh, um, common elements of so many of these hymns is the rich experience that the authors draw from in writing these lyrics. Uh, other song, other hymns come to mind as well. One of the great hymns, of course, it is Well With My Soul, written by Horatio Spafford, uh, out of tremendous personal tragedy that caused him to write those songs. And when you know that story, maybe one we'll cover in another uh, episode, but when you know that story, um, lyrics like uh, speaking of the sea billows rolling and that um, begin to take on a, a much more dramatic poignancy when our understanding of what he meant when he talked about how it is well with my soul and under what circumstances he wrote those things. Interestingly, we don't know who the author to How Firm a Foundation is. Uh, it is generally associated with a, per a man named Keane, who uh, is most often connected with having written the lyrics there. However, we don't really know that for sure. It's one of the great mysteries of hymnology. We don't know who wrote this one. As great and as prevalent uh, and as well-beloved as a song uh, as it is. Um, but as I think about the experience that may have been brought out of this passage, certainly the rich scriptural connection that this, this hymn has um, in, uh, in uh, matter of fact, the second stanza is almost verbatim, Isaiah 41, uh, verse 10, I think. And, um, but it's, it's, so many of these songs are born of, again, as we said earlier, um, just the rich experience of those who wrote it and how they walked with God came to learn of him through his word, began to lean into trust, uh, lean into him and trust in him in difficult circumstances as they clung to the promises that were found in his word. And this is one of those hymns that really uh, expresses that idea. As a matter of fact, when I read the, when I read the passage recently, uh, I was kind of reminded of um, the two episodes on the Sea of Galilee that, uh, that are recorded in the Gospels. In particular, Mark's Gospel includes both of them. Uh, in chapter 4, we see the first of the two in which Jesus gets with his disciples into the boat and they make their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is a large lake. It's, uh, it's not a sea like the Atlantic Ocean or something like that. But in Israel, it's a rather large body of water. And, uh, and these um, guys who are on the boat, four of them at least, were familiar with these waters and fished on it often. Uh, well, because of the way the Sea of Galilee is situated, when the winds come through at certain times of the night, <clears throat> or day sometimes, um, the waves can begin to swell up and really become quite dangerous. And, uh, and that was the case in this and the other episode that we'll look at in a moment as well, or uh, that we'll reference. Uh, and, the, and the disciples on the boat began to fear for their lives because the waves were so strong crashing against the boat. Well, in this first episode, it tells us uh, in, in the story there in, in, in Mark chapter 4, I'll just read a little bit of it here. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. It was Jesus' idea that they go. And leaving the crowd, uh, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm rose, and the waves were breaking onto the boat, 
uh, and so, uh, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In other words, have you not come to realize that when I'm around, things are going to be okay? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Yeah, that's, you know, here it is, Jesus is on the boat with them. And while they're feeling the terror of what's going on around them, Jesus is at perfect peace, sleeping in the stern of the boat. In other words, he was physically, literally right behind them as they were going through this, uh, this storm. Well, they wake him up with sort of an accusation like he doesn't care about their predicament. And so Jesus gets up, and, and I'm kind of excited one day to see them roll the tape on this in heaven and see how this all played out. Uh, but Jesus just sort of gets up and stands up and talks to the weather. This always blows my mind. But he talks to the weather, and it obeys him. Peace, be still. He rebukes the storm, and it stops. And they are stunned by this. Of course, he again challenges them. Why do you still not believe? Why do you still not have faith? But they're amazed, fearful, actually, at who this person is that can even speak to the elements, and they respond. And uh, the interesting thing, and one of the poignant elements of this particular story is that Jesus is with them in the midst of the storm. And Jesus would do a number of things similar to this, uh, maybe not uh, in some ways uh, equal, in some other ways maybe apparently smaller than this, um, but Jesus would do many things miraculously that ultimately were intended to not just impress them per se, except to impress within them the knowledge of who he was uh, and that they could trust him and that he would be able to take care of them and that he was ultimately in charge. He had authority that far extended anything they would ever have thought or could have believed. And, and the idea was that they would come to understand these things about him, that they would put their trust in him. Uh, and so in this episode, it's significant to notice that Jesus is in the boat with them. This is different than in chapter six, where the second episode, a different one entirely takes place where in that episode, Jesus tells them to go across again, the Sea of Galilee, but he doesn't go with them. In this next episode, he actually goes to be up on the hillside and he watches as they make their way across and eventually again begin to struggle as the waters get rough. Now, between these two episodes are a couple of other things that take place. Mark mentions a couple of things, and there, there were likely other things too, but in this particular gospel, he makes mention, uh, Mark mentions that after that first episode, sometime afterward, he sends them on their first missionary journey. He sends the 12 out, uh, and he tells them not to bring a lot of extra supplies. Just bring uh, your sandals, your tunic, walking stick, just some basic things, and not to stock up on things, but just to go. And the intention being that as they went, they would learn that God would provide for them as they had need, that he would take care of them as they went about the business that he had called them to do. Of course, a profound lesson for any of us in and of itself. Also, uh, after that time, after they had returned, uh, Jesus uh, is teaching the multitudes, and it gets a little late in the day, and the disciples come to him and say, you should send them away because they're going to be hungry and they're going to need to find food. And Jesus, of course, you're familiar with the story. Jesus tells them, well, why don't you feed them? 
Now, of course, Jesus knew they didn't have the means to feed the multitudes. As a matter of fact, after they, uh, uh, however they came about finding this out, they came across a kid who just basically had some food that amounted to a, a little bit of lunch. You know, he had a couple of fish and uh, or had uh, five loaves and two fish. Just a, it says loaves sounds kind of bigger than it actually is. This was enough food for a, a kid to carry. So he didn't have these big French loaves and these big mackerel, or I don't know if mackerels are big, but some big fish or something. I'm not much of a fisherman. But he didn't have a ton of food. Certainly it was ludicrously small amount to consider feeding the multitudes with. But nonetheless, they learned in that episode that even when they took what little bit they had, Jesus could multiply to take care of multitudes. And so they were learning these lessons about him. And he was intentionally putting them in situations where they would have to learn to trust him. The storms were no different. They were circumstances that Jesus put them in so that they would learn these kinds of lessons. In the second episode, again, on the Sea of Galilee, they are struggling for quite a while at this particular point. It says that at the fourth watch of the night, Jesus now comes down and he comes to them. Now they're on the water and they're being pitched around by the the waves and everything. And so Jesus begins to walk to them on the water. Now they are terrified by this. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. They just see what they think is a spirit coming toward them because why would their natural inclination be to think that Jesus was walking on the water to them? That kind of thing doesn't happen. And so their response is one of terror and fear until Jesus calls out to them. And he says, uh, as a matter of fact, I'll read it to you. He says here in Mark chapter 6, if you're uh, looking at the passage, here in verse uh, 50, he says, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, one of the other gospels that, uh, that shares this same account includes the account where Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, then command me to come out to you on the water. So Jesus says, come. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he begins to walk on water. This is miraculous. And he's walking to Jesus until he becomes overwhelmed at the sensations of the fact that this storm is taking place around him. He eventually begins to sort of take his eyes off the Lord, key point, and he begins to recognize and see the waves around him and he begins to sink. And he does just, and I love the fact that this was the natural response that in his circumstance, he says, Jesus, save me. Shortest, most sincere prayer, right? Jesus, save me. And so Jesus reaches down, takes him by the hand, and they get into the boat. They arrive at the land, and the, the episode's over. Well, Jesus, in both instances, had them get into the boat and make their way through this storm. Uh, the rough waters were going to be overwhelming to them, but Jesus still, nonetheless knowing what was coming, sent them into that that they might learn and grow through it. This becomes an important thing for us to recognize, an important place for us to stop and consider. Jesus said in this life, in this world, you'll have tribulation. This is just part and parcel with what it means to be a human being, certainly what it means to be a follower of Christ. But as, as the poet said, into every life a little rain must fall. This is, of course, a little more than a little rain in this particular scenes, but the idea that hardships, difficulties, foul weather is going to come upon all of us at some point. This is true whether you're a believer or not, but you're not exempt from it as a believer. But the big key point is this, how we view that can have a lot of difference in how we respond to it. Uh, And this is not some powers of positive thinking thing. What I'm saying is to see these things 
through the lens that God would have us see it through. In both of these cases, Jesus' intention is to teach them. You'll notice again at at, uh, the end of the first episode, there is this question, well, why do you still doubt? Why don't you have faith? The, The expectation is that as they are walking with Jesus more and more and more, they are growing in their trust of him in their ability to rest in him, in their ability to see him for who he is, and therefore to be able to, again, trust him. Both of these storms were very literal. They weren't metaphorical. They weren't figurative. They're not to be spiritualized. We learn spiritual lessons from them, but they are spiritual lessons drawn from an actual, physical, fear-filled, dangerous, life-threatening situation. Interesting. So many of the Old Testament examples, look at David's life, where he literally was crying out to the Lord in the midst of people wanting to kill him. Saul chasing him and wanting to destroy him. Uh, um, you know, the Philistines wanting to destroy him and things like this. Literal, physical, fearful circumstances. David literally was running for his life at various times. And in the midst of those struggles and trials, David learned to trust the faithfulness of God. And he wrote about it so often in the Psalms. Well, here in these situations as well, this is kind of like their time of proving and testing and growing and maturing in faith. And this is what we glean from the trials that come our way. Um, James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces patience and ultimately brings forth maturity in the life of a believer. But if we don't see trials that way, oftentimes we can be crushed by them. We can see them as devoid of any meaning, but just simply difficult, hard things. And what's worse is that sometimes in the midst of these circumstances, we might begin to sort of not only not turn to God and learn and grow through it, but we might actually begin to accuse God, much like the disciples did in the moment of their first episode. You know, don't you care that we're perishing? How many of us have been there where we feel like God is not in the circumstance, even though he's right there? It's another important thing from these two different episodes, and I think it's a key point for us to, or a key element of, uh, of each of them for us to notice. In the first episode, Jesus was physically right there with them. He was right in their midst. They thought he didn't care for a moment because they were just responding in fear, but he was there. In the second episode, he wasn't physically with them, though he was still nearby watching and participating as he ultimately came to them. We feel the very same thing based on our circumstances sometimes. There are times we go through trials, but we just know that the Lord's in it. We just are filled with faith in that moment, and we just know he's there. But other times, we feel like he's absent, like he has sort of gone somewhere else, and he's not in the boat with us, as it were. We ought not think that about him. There's never a time when he's not with us. There's never a time where he is so far removed from what's going on that he won't get there in time or he won't see what's happening. Neither of those things were true even when he was on the hillside watching. What was happening was completely, he was completely aware of it. And he got there exactly when he needed to get there. In neither neither case did they perish, but he was there physically the first time and he came the second time, miraculously so. In both of those cases, the lessons that they learned in that um, had to have been profound. Jesus has got this. He is never far from us. But in fact, he's always near to those who call out to him in truth, as the word says. And so, as we find ourselves going through these things, and we will, 
it's important for us to remember that Jesus is with us. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? It doesn't sound like a terribly profound conclusion to draw from these things. But it is one of the most meaningful things that we can meditate on, that we can contemplate, that we can consider. And I mean that in the biblical sense, to mull those things over, to flood our minds and hearts with the knowledge of these kinds of things that remind us of his goodness and faithfulness. Actual examples where he demonstrated this to those who came before us that we read about in the scripture, or even who we read about through history, maybe even the hymn writers that we were talking about before, where we recognize God's faithfulness in the lives of others and as his children today, let us begin to consider all the times God has shown himself faithful to us. How many times has Jesus shown up in the circumstances of our lives in the last second seemingly to us? Seemed like we were about to go down, but there he was. This is an important lesson for us because our faith is not one that is just simply a bunch of rules and regulations that we sort of reiterate on Sundays when we get together. But our faith is a living faith rooted in a living Savior who literally walks with us. The last, uh, not the last, but the third uh, stanza in that same hymn, How Firm a Foundation, goes like this. And this is, obviously you'll see this is why this, this, these passages come to mind when we read it. But when through the deep waters I call you to go, this is now God's, you know, the author sort of um, speaking, as it were, on behalf of God here, sort of uh, personifying. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, The rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Sanctify or set apart to you even your deepest distress. What do we glean from that? What what did the author's experience bring to bear on this that we can learn from? Well, God even uses our deepest distresses, the most difficult of circumstances, the most trying of trials. He sets those things apart in order that we might learn that he is with us in them. We don't often call out to God when things are good, but when things are going sideways, when the waves are crashing down, that's the time when we lift up our hands to God and say, please God, meet me in this, help me. Jesus, save me uh, from this circumstance. Help me. I need you. These are the kinds of sentiments that flow from our hearts naturally in the times of difficulty. But it's in those times of difficulty that that happens. And that's why those times are necessary for us. Because if we never call out to God, oftentimes we're less prone to see him show up. He's always there, don't get me wrong. But there is something specifically special about how he shows up in our times of deepest distress. And so therefore these become times set apart This was the author's idea, set apart for our growth, for our learning that he is there with us. It's important that we always remember that God uses these distresses, not to waste time in our lives, not frivolously, not to tear us down, except to tear down those things that need to go sometimes. But ultimately, even that tearing down is intended for our building up. And so trials serve a purpose. They're tools in the hand of a master builder. And when we see them that way, We recognize that even in the midst of this storm, even in the midst of these rough waters, I don't need to be afraid, but I want to be aware. God, what are you doing here? What are you teaching me? Help me to learn it and help me to grow. Storms are tools in the hand of our master, uh, the master worker and builder. And so 
God, help us to see things the way he would have us see them, that we might grow and learn the way he desires us to. Father, we want to thank you and bless you for taking even the most trying of circumstances and using them as tools to build us, to make us that which we might not otherwise be. We thank you that you don't put us through things frivolously, that your intention is not to simply just bring us through trials in in some way that is intended to do damage to us, but rather is intended to build us up. Sometimes, yes, to prune away things that need to go, but so often these trials are intended for us to grow to maturity. So help us to see things from that perspective. Help us not to accuse you of harming us or to be unaware of our sufferings, but rather help us to realize that you are keenly aware. As a matter of fact, your hand is on the thermostat, as it were, not allowing the heat to be turned up any more than is absolutely necessary to accomplish that great good that you're working out in us. So we thank you, we praise you, we help. We just ask you to help us see this way in the midst of what we might be going through right now, whether it's what we see going on in the world in general or whether we're going through something in our own little worlds right now. We thank you, Lord, that whether we feel your presence or not, we know because you've said so that you're with us. And we rejoice in this. Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you as you go today and whatever else you've got ahead of you. Uh, As always, feel free to comment. Uh, Matter of fact, if you feel led to share a passage or two from the Word that has just encouraged you in the midst of your own trials, that might be a wonderful blessing to another uh, person that uh, reads the comments and that too. But in any case, you're always welcome to comment here on our YouTube channel below the videos. You can also go to my website at parsonspad.com where we also post these videos and where you can subscribe to the audio-only version of these as well. And uh, if you'd like, you can email me from there or from our church's website at calvarychapelfranklin.com. So thanks for watching, and we'll look forward to catching up with you next time as we continue in the Word and as we continue to grow together in our relationship with Christ. So God be with you, and we'll see you next time.